There we go. Ah, there we go. There we are. All right. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate that. Good morning, and good morning, good morning. Hey, how about a round of applause for our young adults? You guys have graduated to a new level of adulthood there. Yeah, thank you. As, you know, Bob and Gabe are out. Uh, my wife, unfortunately, is working today, so I was like, that's it. We're, we're, get, we're getting creative this morning. I like it. So, um, ah, well, good morning. If you're out online, good morning to uh, Pastor Paphras and our, our sister congregation in Tanzania. I think we've got a good message this morning. I'm excited about this. We're... We're doing kind of a, a one-off or this week and next week. Pastor Tom will be preaching next week, which is a very exciting first time. Uh, but we're taking a little break from our series in Ezra and Nehemiah um, just to, as we do these two weeks and afterward, we'll be moving into our Easter series for about four weeks after that. So a um, little break here. So even though these are kind of one-off messages, both Tom's message and mine will kind of have some themes of Easter as well. Um, let me start off with great wisdom from a great woman, Princess Leia. <laughs> uh, in, in the, in, I think it was The Last Jedi. Uh, she says, hope uh, is a lot like the sun. If you only believe in it when you see it, you'll never make it through the night. Or, uh, or when I was 19, or, or summer after my freshman year in college, I decided... Or, for reasons I still don't understand, that I wanted a real job. So I threw brick at a a brickyard um, in in Denver 10 hours a night on a graveyard shift. Um, Again, why, I don't know. But (laughs) I went in as a little skinny 19-year-old kid, and I came out looking like Popeye, (laughs) because the only only muscles I used were my arms. But all night, what we would do is uh, Robinson Brick Company made some of the nicest brick in the nation, they came out with these nice sharp edges. But if you wanted antique looking brick, you couldn't get that. So I was in what was called the tumbling department. And what we did all night is we took brick off a pallet and put it on a conveyor belt that went up and tumbled it into the, against itself to chip the edges. And then on the other end, we would take it off a conveyor belt and put it onto a pallet. So 10 hours a night, what I do is stack brick and go like this. Yeah. All through, and, and it was on a graveyard shift, so I'd get there about 6 p.m., about 8 p.m., I'm sorry. And the beautiful thing about, the only beautiful thing about it was um, that, that moment the sun came up, right? Because you knew when the sun crested that horizon, that about 15 minutes later, the burrito gal would ride it in her truck. <laughs> We'd all get a burrito take a break about 6.30, then we'd wrap up and go home. And so I can attest to the beauty of that quote, right? There is a beauty to just making it through the night. And there's no doubt that that sun is coming up, right? You don't have doubt, but there's a hope that carries you to that point. And so that's the word we're going to talk about this morning is hope. It's just a simple word, something our world desperately needs. But as Christians, I think we've lost sight to some degree of what that word means and how it's supposed to shape our lives. Uh, Every Sunday, my dad sends me a text message before he heads out to church, sends me a scripture verse. Uh, I always appreciate it. I look forward to it. It always seems to hit the mark. And uh, a few weeks back, he sent me Romans 5, 3 through 5 which I'll read in a minute here. 
But I've read Romans plenty of times. I've read those verses plenty of times. Uh, but that day, it just struck out. It stuck out to me. Something stuck out that I hadn't seen before. And, you know, the Holy Spirit does that with Scripture. Right? He'll take something that's familiar that you've seen, and he'll just kind of make it new to remind you that there's always more depth and knowledge that he has to give in his word. So this morning, we're going to talk about what hope looks like as a Christian. We're going to talk about how we recapture a proper understanding of that hope. And we're going to talk about how we live that hope out in our lives. So let's read these verses together um, before we jump in. I'm going to start in verse 1. So this is Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And this is verse three through five. And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Does anything jump out to you in those verses? What I saw for the first time was that, was that in Paul's list of increasing character traits, hope is the top of the ladder. Right? Rejoicing in our suffering creates perseverance. Perseverance creates proven character. Proven character creates hope, and hope does not disappoint. Why does Paul present hope as the goal? Doesn't that seem a little odd? If it seems odd to you as, as much as it did to me, I'd suggest that we don't understand hope the way Paul and the early Christians did. Simple word, hope, right? We use it a lot. We hear it a lot, right? Hope doesn't snow today. Uh, I hope my kids get into a good college, right? I hope they have cake at this party, right? You know? <laughs> but the way we use the word hope is very different than the meaning of the word that Paul uses. See, we've reduced the idea of hope to like a maybe, right? like a shot in the dark, right? In those statements I just made, hope is really nothing more than a wish, Right, for something over which I have no control. See, we, we think of hope as something more akin to luck these days. Right, actually, most of the time that we use the word hope, we would do better to use the word luck or wish. But the Greek word elpis, right, the, the, that root word that we translate hope, actually means something completely different. Hope to the biblical authors means a confident assurance of something that has simply not yet arrived. Like me waiting for the sun to come up and the burrito gal to come in, <laughs> right? But there's a hope. I had no doubt. I have no doubt that sun's coming up. I have no doubt. Well, sometimes the burrito lady didn't come, but still, you know, I had no doubt that hope was that that sun was coming up, Right? And, and when it, just to see it crest the horizon was always a hope fulfilled. Far from a desire 
that has a 50-50 chance of coming to pass, right? Hope in the Christian life is rooted deeply in the confidence of who God is and that when he says he will do something, it's not a matter of if, but of when. So we need to redefine our understanding of hope to match how God talks about it. See, without understanding hope in this way, we can't take hold of the promises that God has for what he's going to do in our lives, in our families, and for those around us. We're left looking for security in the same places the world looks for it. And that's a huge problem. To make this point, let's look at how Paul actually describes Abraham's hope in God's promise to give Abraham a son in his old age. Right? This is a... Uh, Romans 4, 18 to 19. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. See, if we look at hope in the way that we do today, that first statement doesn't even really make sense, right? How can you hope against hope if hope is just a shot in the dark, right? But if hope is the confident assurance of something still to come, then hoping against hope means Abraham is trusting God to fulfill his promise even when logic in the world would tell him he's a fool, So then we see that confidence in verse 21, right? He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's a biblical definition of hope. So imagine if you had relatives coming for a holiday, right? And your spouse said, I'm really hoping I get to see them this holiday. To which you might say, well, of course you're getting to see them. They confirmed they were coming. And your spouse might say, yes, that's what I'm hoping for. To which you might pull out an old line and say, wait, who's on first? (laughs) So you're not speaking the same language. You're using hope as a wish or as luck, and your spouse is using it in the biblical sense. To them, there's no doubt the guests are coming, but they haven't arrived yet. And when they do, that hope turns into joy fulfilled. Paul captures this idea in Romans 8, 24 and 25. He says, for in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Right? We don't wait, for patient, wait patiently for things that might or might not happen. We wait patiently for things we know are coming. See, hope to Paul in the early Christian church meant there was no question about who God is, what Jesus had done, and the daily effect it should have on the way we live. That's fundamentally different than the way we see hope today, which is why we miss the impact of verses like Romans 5 and why we kind of scratch our heads when Paul says hope is a top sign of a mature Christian. So how do we go about fixing our understanding of hope? Well, the answer is pretty simple. We have to know the promises of God in order to truly set our hope on those things. 
We need to spend time training ourselves in these things like we train ourselves in anything else that we care about or want to be good at. Right, look at how Paul encourages his young protege, Timothy, in this way. Right? It says, 1 Timothy 4, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. A.W. Tozer, a well-known Christian author from the early 20th century, once said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what he was conveying was the idea that as human beings, we hold the idea of God higher than anything else, right, in our lives. And so when, what we think about when we think about God will define everything else about how we live. C.S. Lewis, right, one of the most profound, prolific writers in the last century, uh, a contemporary of Tozer, actually responded to Tozer's comment in his book, The Weight of Glory. And Lewis says this, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. It is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but it is infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son. Why do I quote those men? Because both of those things are true. But I wonder when was the last time you considered how important it is that you understand how God sees you or how you see God. See, in our culture, we're obsessed with winning and training, health and promotion and success. We focus on these things because we put priority on them. But if we're not careful, those things become the things on which we set our hope rather than the living God. And if we do that, we betrayed what we truly think about God and what, he, and what we believe he thinks about us. If we spend our time training ourselves for the accomplishments of the world, but not training ourselves for godliness, we reveal that we really don't think much of the hope that God has offered us. But how do we go about training ourselves then to know the promises of God? If you truly want to understand these things and take hold of all of the wonder of the Christian life, you have to spend time with God. Right? You have to pick up the book where he's written all of this down to spend time there. Right? These are the things, this is the thing I say almost every time I preach. But there is no better way to live. There is no greater promise. There is no better hope than what we find than what we find in God. We're going to sing a song after this service that I, I love, and I asked Tom to put up uh, to do, but he just says, you know, oh, God our Savior, do you do all things well? 
So if we train ourselves in these things, we, we spend time with this, right? And I say to you, listen, you need to pick up the book where he's written all these promises down. There's a good chance that some of the years out there just turned off, right? Bible study, ugh, boring, right? I'm not a scholar. The Bible is old and complex, and I do not have time to figure these things out, right? I come here on Sunday so you can tell me these things, right? Listen, I know it can seem like that. But the Bible, it, the Bible certainly has a depth to it that a person can spend a lifetime exploring. But that's the amazing thing about the Bible is it's also easy to read in so many ways. Anyone can pick up the Bible and come to an understanding of who Jesus is, how he showed us who God was or is, and the promises that are face value in there. Right? The devil wants you to think of the Bible as boring. And he wants you to think of it as a waste of time that's going to suck all of the joy out of your day as soon as you sit down to read it. He'll create plenty of resistance to you reading it because he doesn't want you to know how God sees you or what God has promised for you. And listen, let's be honest. If you approach the Bible like a textbook, it will suck all the joy out of your life. (laughs) It's not a textbook. If you approach it, though, as an active living word to which God, the God who walks next to you all day wants to talk to you, it takes on an excitement and a hope, right, that you may not have considered. We sit down and we read this book, we picture God way up there somewhere and we're just reading these words, right? But if you picture Jesus sitting next to you going, as soon as you open that thing up, I'm waiting to talk to you. It's a different perspective. And that's the right one. See, look at this verse from Romans 8, 31 to 32, for an example. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Just look at that for a minute. If that was the only verse you read in a day, you could spend the next next week, the next month, thinking about what that verse means for you. How will he who gave his son for us not graciously give us all things? I mean, there's depth there that you just go, "Uh, okay, you know, I mean, again, there's one verse. There's so much waiting for us in Scripture if we'll just start training ourselves for godliness in the smallest ways. No one's asking you to write a dissertation. No one's asking you to get into the Greek. You don't have to do any of that. So as a side note, if you don't know where to start, a few practical suggestions for you right here. One, don't start at the beginning. I'm just going to say that. The Old Testament is amazing, but Genesis is a big piece of literature that's several thousand years old, and it can be a bit overwhelming. Right? Start in the New Testament and get to know Jesus. Matthew 5 is a great place to start. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's a collection of some of Jesus' most straightforward and important teachings. 
Read the Gospel of John. John is unique among the four Gospels, and its focus is on the deep love of who Jesus is. If you want to start with a little more thinking person's kind of place, read the book of Romans. Romans has been called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. And the first eight chapters of Romans lay out the plan of God in a clear and really meaningful way. Right? You don't have to go, well, I'm going to start with this all thousands of years old and I'm genealogies of people and count, right? Get to something that's interesting. Right? And then you'll come back to find things like the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, right? Which starts out, and you'll realize there are only four women in the genealogy of Jesus. Um, one was a Gentile prostitute from Jericho. The other one uh, was uh, raped by her brother and then convinced her father-in-law to sleep with her. The third one was uh, Bathsheba, with who Jesus, or I mean, geez, whoop, with who David committed adultery. Forgive me. <laughs> and the fourth one uh, was a Moabite woman who wasn't even supposed to be able to uh, marry an Israelite. Those are the four women listed in Jesus' genealogy, right? A genealogy written by Matthew, by the way, who was a tax collector, who was an outcast. Why do you think he included those four women, right? There is a depth and a profundity to these things, but, you know, you'll get there eventually, right? Start with things that, are, that get you to, to hear the hope of Jesus and the hope that he has for you. If we can take hold of these things and reset our understanding of hope in our lives by training ourselves in this way, it will transform the way we see God and the way we see ourselves. Right? You will become so gripped with the assurance of who he is and what he has for, uh, for you and the overwhelming value of it that it will take its proper priority in your life. And once you have taken hold of that priority and that hope, nothing can shake it. And that brings us to our last point this morning. This hope, this confident assurance of the promises of God is not only meant to make us look different from the world, but it's made to make us stand out to the world. Look at what Hebrews says. Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. How many of us feel like we could use an anchor in our lives? In our culture of constant uncertainty, wouldn't a steadfast anchor be nice? Something that's not only immovable, but also more powerful than anything else you're facing? Listen, we all know that the hope of the gospel in Jesus is eternal life, right? But I've talked up here before about how eternal life is not a timeline. It's not something that starts when you died. To the Hebrew mind, eternal life was a qualitative idea. Right? In other words, it's the kind of life that begins when the Holy Spirit takes hold of you. It's the infinite depth of life into which you enter in when you're saved. The idea that we just 
live down here struggling through a life that has no distinction from those who don't have hope in Jesus, right? Looking forward to a day when it all just ends, it's just wrong. That is not the message of the gospel of hope that we have in Jesus, right? We talk about a longing for Jesus to come back and rescue us from this world that's falling apart and full of chaos or But here's the punchline. Jesus is not coming back to rescue us from the irritations and offenses of the people that we're supposed to be working to save in love and in hope. The idea that our lives would be spent pursuing the same uncertain things of the world, hoping against hope that those things will bring us joy Contentment and peace is exactly the lie, the lie that the devil wants us to believe. Right? Is that the kind of life that Jesus meant when he said, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden? That sounds more like we're supposed to be a beacon of hope to the world around us. See, how many of us are honestly willing to say that we feel like we can rely on our 401k security? Right? Or that our employment is firm and secure and under our control. How many of us lived through the financial crash of 2009 and the fallout afterward? Right? Personally, I lost a successful construction company during that time, went through bankruptcy, right? for circumstances that were completely beyond my control. And plenty of others lost everything they had spent their lives working for Anybody remember COVID? Okay. If you don't, go see a doctor. You probably have long COVID. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> in our wildest dreams, did anyone of us ever think that we would see something like that in our lifetime? How many jobs were lost and lives upended because of the chaos of that time? You know, we don't get political up here. I don't mean to be that. But, you know... It's not far to say our government and our culture are ruled by rage and distrust and misinformation and violent tribalism. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Nothing is working. Everyone's blaming everyone else and no one's willing to work together. How many of you understand that historically the passing of the presidency from Washington to John Adams was the first time in history that a peaceful transition of power had occurred not along a bloodline. And again, whatever you think of of who's to blame and and, and what happened and all that, 2021 was the first time we failed to do that in 224 years. Again, not a political statement, but simply a a, a statement to highlight the fact that things that we have taken for granted for so long are all being shaken. Right, the things that we have hoped in and relied on are no longer there. What is there to put our hope in these days other than an immovable, eternal anchor for our souls? Right, listen to what Peter said to the early church. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared 
to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. See, Peter tells the church that they're blessed for suffering well. And then he makes this odd statement. Look at it again. This is Peter, 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do you see what's between the lines there? He's saying to Christians that when you suffer well, when you repay evil with good, when you love your enemies, when you forgive without measure all things that were commanded to do by Jesus, that the world is going to look at you in a state of confusion and ask you bluntly, why do you still have joy? What could you possibly put your hope in that allows you to live like that? Right? What is the reason for this hope that you have? See, Christians have too often used this verse to justify arguing with people about the, you know, how the gospel is true. Right? But that's not at all what this verse is saying. It has nothing to do with an intellectual defense of the faith. Apologetics is beautiful, and if you want to go to Terry's class on Monday nights, feel free. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> right? But that's not what this verse is saying. Peter here is talking about the light of hope that shines into the life of a non-believer when a Christian lives a life anchored in the hope of Jesus. When, when the non-believer feels crushed and perplexed by the chaos of the world that you both live in, and they look at you and ask, why do you not feel the same crushing weight and anxiety that I do? Right? The door is open for you to be a conduit of God's hope in their life. You become the very means by which, as Paul said, God can transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. There's no other way it happens. But if we don't understand this hope ourselves, if we don't take hold of the promises of God, if we don't train ourselves for godliness, then no one is ever going to ask you to explain a hope that you don't have. See, we're the ones with the answers. We're the ones with the authority. We're the ones that bring the kingdom of God to bear on the world around us. Let's be clear on something. If the culture around us is sick, it's because the church was sick first. If the world around us has no hope, it's because we have failed to give it to them. And if we have failed to give it to them, it's probably because we don't understand it ourselves. See, Jesus has come and claimed victory over all the darkness of the world. There's nothing left that comes against the kingdom of God. So if we are not advancing the kingdom of God in our culture and the culture is suffering for it, that's on us. We are the carriers of hope in this world and the stewards of the promises of God for everyone, the people we work with, the people we run to the grocery store, the other parents in our kids' sports teams, and anyone that God puts in our path. The people around us desperately need hope, but they won't see it if those of us that are supposed to live that way don't understand it. But this hope is the light of the world. 
See, cultural seasons like this one have a tendency to distill our true allegiances. Like two huge icebergs floating away from each other, right? The polarizing nature of our culture will force you to choose which side you're on. Right? The time of being able to hide in that easy place and not really admit what you think is, is fading. If we take hold of this hope that we've talked about this morning, we will find ourselves in a place where we need to give a reason for the hope that we have. Right? I'm not speaking, I'm speaking to everybody here. Young people, listen to me. This is the future of, you are the future of this. Right? Some of us are on the, the back end of that, but you guys have a lifetime ahead of you to take hold of this. Well, so what does this look like, right? Well, here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like pulling ourselves out of the world and hiding in a Christian bubble. Right? Paul made this very clear to the, the Corinthians who lived in a wildly immoral culture. Right? He said this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. How can you shine a light into darkness if you're hiding from it? And again, light has no reason to be afraid of darkness. Light overcomes darkness. Darkness is just the absence of light. We are to be engaged with the world around us, but to do so in a way that holds allegiance to the things of God and not to the pleasures of the world. The last thing we should be doing as Christians is condemning a world that's stumbling around in darkness. How do they know any better? And listen, if this, if this message is a bit convicting, I, I hope so, right? I'm accountable to God. Anyone that stands up on the stage is accountable to God, right? To draw you, all of us, draw me, this message is as much for me as anyone, right? To draw us all into a deeper maturity in Christ, Right, my, my role up here, I failed at my role up here if I just tell us all the things we want to hear. Right, that's not bringing us to maturity. That's not, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to, what God has called me to do. Right, we talk, we talk about revival and wanting all these things, right? Uh, but again, the song we're gonna hear during communion and afterward, I really encourage you to listen to the lyrics and hear it. It's a song called Resurrendered. And I asked Tom to play it specifically for that. We want revival, but what we want, what we need first is resurrendered. Right? We need to come to a place of going, God, I got I need to know you deeper. Right? And again, not out of a place where he's like, Yeah, you do. You know, like that's not how he operates, right? He's like, yes, please. There's so much here. There's so much good. There's nothing better. There's no greater joy. There's no greater peace. There's no greater anchor for your soul than just being closer to me. So I don't stand here to condemn anyone or, 
right? The Holy Spirit will draw, if the Holy Spirit's drawing your heart because of these things, trust me, he's been doing this for me, on me for weeks now, right? Which is why, why I wanted to preach this. So the question you have to wrestle with this week is where are you gonna, where have you put your hope and where will you put your hope in the, going forward? Right, will you stop leaving the Bible study stuff to the guy up front on Sunday? Will you begin taking hold of hearing God for yourself? Will you let those promises take root so deeply in your soul that you begin to see the world around you like Jesus does? See, as we move toward Easter, we can't help but face the greatest promise of all, the salvation that Jesus brought us by his work on that cross behind me. But that was just the beginning of the life, right, that Jesus means us to have. That cross is an anchor of our hope, not only in the next life, but also in this one right now. So take hold of it, because there's no better secure way to live. And listen, if you're here this morning, I know there are people here in this room right now you're going, I don't know that I've ever really known that hope or understood it. Right? Take this morning. Take this time. We'll have a prayer team in the back. Go pray with someone. Sit and just say, God, I want this hope. Show me. Right? Show me how to get there. He is active and living. He's not far off. He's right there. I don't have to lead you through a prayer to say, you know, or whatever it is that I would say to lead you through a prayer, right? This is between you and God. You turn your heart and resurrender, he will meet you there. That's who he is. He's waiting, waiting and longing to give you all good things. So as we go into communion, pause for a moment, right, before you take those elements, Slow down and just meditate on what this hope means for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your hope. Your hope has saved my life. It has saved the lives of so many in here. And I pray that you use us to bring hope to the world around us that this morning we would confront the places we've put our hope where it doesn't belong. And we would trust you and we would move forward in a new way to take hold of promises. Even if we have taken hold of them, we would take hold of them deeper. There's always more depth to you, Lord. We love you. Holy Spirit, thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, thank you guys. For those of you that, you know, most of us here I think know how communion works, but we'll have couples up here with bread and wine. There's uh, gluten-free crackers and self-serve uh, uh, cups and, and juice in the back if you care to do that. Uh, again, next week we have the privilege of hearing from Pastor Tom, so come back for that. We also have our healing prayer first week of next month. Uh, and again, if you want to pray with someone in the back, they'll be there. Thank you guys.